You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. In the, the mid-1980s, there's a Canadian psychologist. His name is uh, Roger Barnsley. He was at a, a junior league hockey tournament in Canada. And uh, when he was going through the roster, you know, sometimes in the, in the sports programs, they have the roster of the players. And he was looking through it, and he noticed something very unusual. Um, most of the players on the teams were born in the months of January, February, and March. And this really intrigued him. And so he got home and started doing a little investigating. And he looked at the entire roster, all the rosters in the, in the entire Ontario Junior League hockey teams. He looked at all the, and these are some of the elite leagues that were happening there in Canada. And he noticed the same type of thing. So he started looking at the, the all-star teams for 11-year-olds and all-star teams for 13-year-olds. He even started looking at NHL rosters, the National Hockey League rosters, and he, he, he noticed this. In fact, he, from his research, he made this statement. In any, in any elite group of hockey players, the very, you know, the very best of the best, in those groups, 40% of them were born in the months of January, February, and March. <clears throat> 30% are in April, May, and June, 20% July, August, September, 10% October, November, December. And he said, it's like that no matter what team, no matter what roster, um, in the elite hockey um, leagues. <clears throat> he discovered the reasons actually pretty, sim- pretty, pretty simple to explain. The cutoff date in Canada, the, the, the eligibility cutoff for age class hockey is January 1. So that means if you're born on January 2nd, you could, and you're playing on a team with somebody who's born at the end of the year, there's almost a year's difference in age. And so at this age, at the 10-year-old age, when they're first starting to pick, you know, who's going to make the all-star teams and who's going to make the traveling elite teams, the coaches are picking those who are the biggest, the strongest, and the most coordinated. Well, at 10 years old, who is that? It's the older, by and large, it's the older boys that, are, that, that fall into this. And so in this, this pre-adolescent age, that one year can make a huge difference. Just think about middle school. What happens between, you know, some boys, they just start. And so, you, so that was, that was how, why he explained it. And, but here's, here's the result of that then. So you're a little older and you get picked for one of these teams and all of a sudden you're now getting better coaching because you're, at, you're in the all-star leagues and you've got people, the coaches are just a little bit better as opposed to someone's dad, you know, just down the road coaching your team. You're playing with more talented teammates. You practice twice as much because you're traveling all this time. You play 50 to 70 games a season instead of the regular 20 in most city league kind of games or seasons. So here's the thing. At the age of 10, the difference in skill might not be that much between one boy and another, even though that one's bigger than the other. The skill, is pr- it can be pretty close. By the age of 13, the all-star boy, because of all the little perks he's gotten, the better coaching, more practice, all of a sudden, he is night and day better. He is significantly better at this point in time. Now, clearly these all-stars are very talented. There's no denying that. They are very talented. And, and they've worked very hard to get where they're at. They've put in a lot of time. But one of these hockey players, if you were to interview them and ask them, they would be very misguided if they made this statement. 
If they said this, my success is due entirely to my hard work and effort. I did it all on my own. It would be misguided. Because the fact is, because of his age, he had an advantage. He got a head start, if you will. An opportunity that he neither deserved, nor did he earn. Now, Unfortunately, this idea that our success in life is the result of our efforts alone is quite common in our American culture. Sadly, we think that how far we go in life is about us. How much time, how much effort, how much skill we put into something. And we forget about the role God plays in all of it. Now, we're in a series, uh, if you've been here for last few weeks, we're in a series called God's at War. And it's based on the premise that there's a battle for, the, for our hearts. There's a battle for our hearts. And if something has our heart, we give it our time, we give it our attention, we give it our money, we pursue it, we sacrifice for it. And that is the very essence of worship. But when we worship something other than the one true God, it becomes idolatry. The thing we pursue becomes a substitute for God in our lives. Idolatry. Now, last week we took uh, we took some time to look at the gods of pleasure. Today we're going to look at uh, take a closer look at the gods of power. Now, and similar to the misguided hockey player I just talked about, the gods of power work from one shared premise: we can take care of ourselves and handle all of our own needs. It's all on me. The thing is, Jesus had some very harsh words for Christ followers who allow the gods of power to govern their lives. In Matthew 15, he says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. So in the next few minutes, I'm going to talk about the gods of success, the god of money, and the God of achievement. Gods of power, if you will. Now let me make clear from the start, none of these are inherently bad. Just like last week, we talked about these gods were God-given, but we made them into something that they were never intended to be. Same here with our gods of success and money and achievement. None of these are inherently bad. It's good to have success. And it's really good to have money. And it's good to have achievement, too, once in a while. The heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. When our heart is devoted or committed to something that holds a greater value in our lives than God, we've created an idol. You know, in uh, chapter 18 of his gospel, Luke tells a story of a rich young ruler who had an encounter with Jesus. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Familiar with the story? And uh, Jesus responds, he says, well, you know the commandments, you know, honor your father and mother, and he starts going through the list, and the young man says, all of these I have done since I was a boy. So we have a young man who has it all. He has wealth, he has youth, he has power, and we even see that he's spiritual. He has, he has an understanding of the things of God. But notice that he used the word, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Now, the word inherit has this idea of, equi- of acquire, even earn in some sense. This young man assumed that eternal life was something that he could achieve. Now, Jesus recognized the value system within the young man. And so he responded this way. He said, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Then young, Luke tells us in his account of this story, he says that when this young man heard this, he became very sad and walked away because he was very wealthy. Now, I want to be clear. This is not a general statement about wealth. This story, Jesus, this was a very specific word from Jesus to a very specific young man about a very specific situation. Jesus looked into the young man's heart and saw that God was not sitting on the throne. So he told the young man, you have a choice to make, one or the other. But the young man walked away because his success meant more to him than anything else. And that's the problem with the first God we're going to look at, the God of success. Our culture defines success as the prestige that comes from attaining an elevated social status. Thus, success is finding out how the score is kept and then keeps going. The cultural view of success emphasizes being self-reliant and self-sufficient, someone who's got it all figured out. I'd like to know something interesting. Um, the word success is rarely used in the Bible. It's here or there, but not very often. The closest equivalent that we see the used frequently is the word blessed. But there's a, they're, they're similar in, in, in that sense, but they're almost polar opposites in another. Success is when you achieve something. Blessed is when you receive something. And Jesus said the people who are among the most blessed are those considered to be poor in spirit. People who know they don't have it all figured out and are humble enough to rely on God for help. Now, in contrast to that, the God of success invites you to save yourself instead of depending on Jesus to do it. The idea of saving yourself is also seen in the second God of power I want to look at, the God of money. How much money would it take right now, in this moment, if someone were to give you amount of, a check or amount of money that would bring you peace and security? that you would say, I'm all set. Don't say anything. But what would that amount be? $1,000? $10,000? $100,000? A million dollars? What amount would bring you that idea of peace and security? Now, someone uh, asked John D. Rockefeller, goes back in history here a little bit. He says, how much more money, this, is, this at the time was, was the richest man in the world. Somebody asked, says, how much more money do you need to make? And his response was, just a little bit more. At the peak of his wealth, Rockefeller had a net worth of about 1% of the entire U.S. economy. Think about that. Of the entire U.S. economy, he had about 1%. Um, he owned... At one point in time, 90% of all the oil and gas industries in the t- at the time. So, 
They didn't have electricity at that time or it was just coming on the scene or he probably would have owned that too. But uh, all of the oil and gas, 90% of it in the country he owned. Compared to today's people, um, you know, like Gates or Warren Buffett, he, he made them look like paupers in scale of what he actually had. And yet for him, it still wasn't enough. He needed just a little bit more. Now, enough isn't just an amount. In other words, when I say, and how much is enough, it's not the amount. This idea of enough is an attitude. Money is a wonderful tool, but it is a terrible, terrible tyrant. And therein lies the difference. What is it do you want out of your money? Now, again, let me be upfront about this. There's nothing wrong with having money. Everybody needs money to live, to get through life. Money is important even in the Bible. Do you know that almost, all, almost, all, uh, almost half of all the parables that Jesus talks about in the New Testament involve the issue of money? So even Jesus recognized the value of money. Money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Matthew 6 tells us, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, the reason why we often love money is because we attribute divine qualities to it. When we love money, it becomes, for, for some of us, it becomes a source of security. If we could just save enough money, then all of our worries would go away. If I just, you know, win the lottery, or if I just had this, just get this raise, just get this job, just then, then I would be safe and secure. And our, and our security is in that money. Here's the challenge about that idea. When we put our faith in money, then we think that we no longer need God. Our money becomes our provision. Throughout Scripture, money is consistently portrayed as God's chief competition. We can chase after money thinking it will bring security when our security should be found in God and in God alone. So sometimes we, want, we pursue money because of our, our desire for security. Sometimes we pursue money because it becomes a source of satisfaction. We think we'll be happier if we have more money or have more things. But here's, here's the thing. Sociologists have shown time and again that the exact opposite is true. Materialism or this idea of acquiring things is actually toxic to happiness. So we think we'll be happier with more things. Just the opposite is true. We also look to money. So we look to money then to be a source of security, a source of satisfaction, and I think sometimes people look for money to be a source of significance. We think we'll have significance with others if we can only attain more money. All of a sudden, we think people will look up to us, that our, our words would have more weight and that we'll have the ability to, people will look up and respect us. We see the God of money wants us to believe our significance come from what we make of ourselves. The truth of the matter is that our identity who we are, our source of significance is found only in Christ. Our value is found in him. So like each of the other gods we've discussed here in the last few weeks, the God of money takes something good, 
something given to us by God and turns it into something that it was never intended to be. Now, here's the shift. Here's when we, can see, here's when we know that it's going from good to not so good. We run into problems whenever we start to think that all of our resources belong to us. The key to keeping the God of money or the God of success from taking root in our life is to remember that it all belongs to God. See, we want to be those who use money as a tool to meet our needs and serve others. Money is a wonderful tool, but it is a horrible master. Now, the last um, of the power gods I want to look at here this morning is this God of achievement. Working hard, achieving goals, these are important parts of life. I mean, this is actually, this is actually an honorable virtue to, to be this way. In fact, we can, I think we can make a case that we honor God by using our talents and our gifts and our abilities for him. So working hard is, is actually a noble thing. The problem here begins when what we've done begins to define who we are. We think of ourselves based upon our work. Now, the God of achievement isn't found only in the big things. It's also found in our little things, like our need to cross things off our list. Or we need to keep everything organized and in its proper place. See, the God of achievement keeps us from fully following Jesus by distracting us with all the things that need to get done. We're so busy achieving that God gets squeezed out of our life. Now, the God of achievement offers us a means of measurement. It's a tangible way for us to evaluate our lives. How was your day? Well, I crossed eight things off my list. It was a good day. Or... It was a terrible, I never, I, I started out to do these things and I never got to any of them and it was a bad day. I'm ranking my day based upon my ability to get things done. What did I achieve that day? Now, what we accomplish provides for us the data that we are valuable. Even as Christ followers, the God of achievement will cause us to believe we are valuable to God because we have something to offer him. The truth of the matter is, God doesn't want our resumes. He wants us. The gods of power, gods of success, money, and achievement, are particularly challenging because we need all of them at some level. Unfortunately, our culture has elevated success and money and achievement as the goal for life. But it is possible to have all three and still not have life. Fullness of life is found in seeking Jesus as we use what we have been given from God. Uh, Most of you know that I've been very fortunate, uh, blessed even, uh, to be able to pursue formal uh, education throughout my life. Um, College, a couple master's degrees. Um, After receiving those degrees, I never once hung a diploma. I got the diploma, put it in a folder, stuck in the file cabinet, and it stayed there forever. Um, I never hung a diploma until I got my PhD. Um, But here's the thing. I didn't buy the frame for that diploma. My dad did. What you wouldn't know about my dad is that um, he's a first-generation American, 
His, grand, his dad came over on the boat. Does that make him first generation or second generation? He's second generation. He was the first one born here in the U.S. and, and that side of the family. High school dropout. Um, now, don't get me wrong. My dad's very intelligent. To this day, I call him for advice and get his input on stuff. Um, but education was not something he was able to pursue and achieve. And uh, so I think in me, he probably saw the realization of a dream or something that he would And so he wanted to buy me that frame. So if you walk into my office today, you're going to find that diploma hanging on the wall. Um, but when I look at it, I don't, I'm not looking at achievement. Although I'm, I, I really am grateful for the opportunity to be able to do that. But what I see is not the achievement. I don't seem to see the diploma. I'm looking at the frame. And I'm realizing that for me to actually have achieved that, there's a lot of people in my life who helped me get there. My dad in, in particular. A lot of people influenced me on my journey through life. And God has blessed me through them. And for that, I am ever grateful. And I think that's the key, that all these gods of power. It's not that we don't have success, not that we don't have money, or we don't have achievement, or shouldn't have any of them. It's that when we look at them, what emotion do they create for us? Is it a sense of satisfaction? Is it a sense of pride? Is it a sense of ego? Or does it create for us a sense of gratitude for what God has done? Is it because of me, or is it because of God and what others have allowed me to do? I'm not denying my role in that. But there's more to it than, than just that. And I think that's true for all of us here as well. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I do thank you for our time here this morning. A time to lift our voices in song. Time to worship you with our voices. And God, just enjoy your presence. Oh, Lord, I'm, I'm particularly grateful for the time we've had uh, this morning just to share with one another, to talk and to, to um, share what, what you're doing in our lives. And when, Lord, when I hear what you're doing in others, someone else's life, it gives me such encouragement and such, Lord, strength, knowing that you're at work in them as well as in me. And together, wow, what an amazing thing you're doing amongst us. And Father, I'm also very grateful for the few minutes we've had to talk about these gods of power Lord, recognizing that each of these things are so important to us. We need, we, we need success. We do. That's what keeps us motivated and keeps us going. And we couldn't live with constant failure. We need success. We need to be able to achieve. We need money. Lord, we don't deny any of that. But Father, I pray for any here this morning for whom those, the attainment of those things has pushed you aside. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would would um, Lord, bring conviction. And Lord, not condemnation, but just a reminder that they're, they're out of balance. And Lord, that they would have the courage to, to be able to admit that to you and to acknowledge that. And uh, Father, to make some changes in their life that would reflect a different pursuit. And uh, <clears throat> Father, I pray for those of us who may be as we're looking at our life and realize there are certain things that have taken your place in our life. Maybe we give too much importance to our list. Maybe we give too much importance to the things we're pursuing and not enough to what you're wanting to do. Uh, 
God, again, I just pray for wisdom and discernment. Lord, the awareness to be able to recognize those moments, to recognize those heart issues that might be at work. And Father, that we would surrender them to you and trust you, as, as uh, Stephanie shared earlier, to be able to trust you, even with the things that we don't think are going to happen, that might seem to be impossible. And then may you prove yourself to us time and again. Uh, so Lord, just again, thank you for this time we've had to be together. And Lord, for the ability to, to celebrate you and to celebrate, uh, to celebrate you with one another. And uh, Lord, it's for your purposes and for your glory that we do all these things. In Jesus' name I pray. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.